Hello and welcome to Moves and Tea, and more importantly, welcome to almost the end of our uh, Quentin Tarantino season. We are, after this, we only have one more film to go, and here we are on the eighth film. I wanted to say, yes, which appropriately is titled, of course, The Hateful Eight, um, which sees Tarantino still in his Western period or in this case still a southern period, in which a group of strangers find themselves thrown together to hide out a storm, only not everybody is who they say they may, they are. Kim, I mean, obviously this is um, another big long one, and it's also western, so hardly two of our favourite things in the world. Um, but how did you find The Hateful Eight? This is a second watch for me, so... I already kind of knew the pacing, and I already had my general feelings towards it. Yeah. I can't say that, like, the second viewing really changed my mind a lot, because I basically felt the same way. Um, except maybe, like, the first... Like, my ba- basic feeling about it is that the fir- there's, like, the first, I guess, chapter, I guess? First chapter or so when they're when they're heading to the cabin, and I think that part is kind of a drag. It's slow, and it's just, I don't know, very... I don't know. I think that part's really hard to get through. Once you get into the cabin, it's a little bit better because once you get into the whole, oh, what's going on and what's the plot here and who's doing what and what are all these, you know, who are all these people, then it gets a little bit more interesting because there's like a whole dynamic. Everybody's in this, it's it's almost like a whodunit, but not really. (laughs) And it, it becomes a little bit more interesting to watch. But I think that that's basically it. Like, if you can get through the first, what, 45 minutes or so of the movie, then I think basically the rest of it is is a lot easier to go through because it's a pace a little bit faster than that part. Yeah. Um, I mean, the film itself is set in 1877, so in the aftermath of the American Civil War is still fresh in everyone's memory. And racial tensions, of course, are still at a very much a high. And it's here that we meet Bounty Hunter and Civil War veteran Major Marquise Warren, here played by Samuel Jackson. We turn to the town of Red Rock, and in trying to outrun the storm, he hitches a ride with the stagecoach, which has been chartered by the Bounty Hunter John Roof, played by Kurt Russell who's also heading to Red Rock to hang the fugitive Daisy Domahue, who is part of the Domahue gang and is going to be very key to this story. Um, and she's also the one of the, the only female characters in this story of the eight. She's the only female member, here played by Jennifer Jason Lee. And along the way, they meet up with Walter Gor- Goggins' uh, sheriff, who's uh, heading in also to Red Rock to be... Um, receive his star so he can become the sheriff of the town and it's in this situation that they end up at a halfway point um, to hide out basically hide out the storm and meet a whole bunch of other characters who also have the similar ID uh, including a uh, hangman played by Tim and Roth we've got uh, the Mexican senior Bob played by Demi Bichier we've got the cow puncher played by Michael Madsen and uh, we have uh, a general of, uh, from the South, uh, General Sanford Sandy Smithers, here played by uh, Bruce Dern. Um, and these characters make up our, uh, the the company who's uh, we're going to be spending a lot of time in because it soon, as we explained already, it soon becomes clear that there are other people 
some motives uh, that may not be what they are originally saying that they are. And over the course of this almost three-hour epic, people were begin to become untrustworthy of other members of the group, and plots are hatched as everything builds to a very bloody and very Tarantino-esque climax. I mean, straight off the bat, I mean, did you have a favourite character out of these eight, or did you sort of view them all pretty equal? I think I view them all pretty equal. I think that the weight of them changes and the appeal of their character changes also. Yes, definitely. I really, like, I think that John Ruth's character, like Kurt Russell, is a pretty good character. Oh, the um, worst man. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but then at the same time, if it was kind of more of, of like a... Like, more of an unknown type of character. I think I always liked Tim Roth, so I thought his character was pretty good, too. Yeah, Tim Roth is <laughs> it's so weird with that accent. Yeah, but it's, it's also his character is so, um, I guess it's like, it's it's not on, like, it's on screen a lot. So you don't really, like, you know he's there, and he does, I think, like, there is one chapter where he's a little bit more, you know, <laughs> uh there in, yeah. in character but um but i don't know i think the second time watching it uh the character that really got me was actually uh the sheriff's character because i don't know if it's because like literally i just finished it <laughs> and the last scene is very heavy on this character <laughs> but i really thought the character had had so much um because in the beginning you kind of thought he was kind of a bad guy in a way yeah you wasn't sure, sure. He's, tur- he's a bad guy turned good right yeah um and you can't really decide whether he is or not and i think even at the end you're not really that sure but at the same time he's really like invested in this sheriff thing well turned to him for the the inspiration i mean he was inspired a lot by the 1960s like western tv shows like bonanza and the virginian and the idea that Often in these shows, you would have an episode where a character is kidnapped by a bunch of bandits and how the situation sort of plays out. And you thought, well, how about if we just have a bunch of characters that we throw together in a situation, but we don't have one who's sort of like, you know, the the clear-cut good guy in the situation. How about we just essentially have eight bad people and see what happens if we throw them together and... But in this case, they're all trapped together because of the storm that's outside. So tensions run high. You throw into the mix the fact that you still got the aftermath of the Civil War there. So obviously tensions between the North and South are still very much high. Racial tensions certainly are very much at a high as um, people are have some, have some rather colourful language, should we say, in this film, which makes it really awkward if you just haven't had this on in the background um, and someone else is in the room. <laughs> um, as the obviously the word Negro and the N word is thrown around a plenty, and I was surprised really it didn't get much more sort of criticism. That obviously that that we got when it uh, came to Django, people actually I think whether they had actually brushed up on the history or since the release of Django or what, um, or just were sort of more used to this sort of setting because of that film um it didn't really receive the same sort of criticism which kind of surprised me because it is pretty heavy in places and certainly the motivation for several of the characters actions throughout this film um including samuel jackson using it to antagonize another character into a lawful murder as he argues it so i don't know i mean after eight 
Tarantino movies. I'm kind of <laughs> over it. <laughs> you know, like I'm so desensitized to the word. Like yeah. to me, it's it seems like it's just to him, it's nothing, right? It. I don't know whether it's meant to be. He's just using it as as as, as just conversation at this point. I don't know how to feel about it. Like I still don't use the word a lot, but no. I mean, I'm not as like ticked off by it <laughs> as I was say. Uh, before, I guess, um, that it would seem a little bit odd to be, you know, it seems, I don't know, because people use it in a very, I guess, people view it as a disrespectful word, right? Yes. It's an awkward word to use. I mean, even now, I mean, here we are, obviously, as as podcasting professionals, and we still obviously don't use, use the word. We obviously reference it, and I think a lot of people are very much the same. They don't like to be associated with... Uh, with that word i mean obviously when it comes to the term of negro it is slightly less got got sort of less hard edge to it and certainly i think when it comes to the character like daisy donahue it really sort of adds highlights just her sort of background she's a lot more sort of common and the fact that she still she thinks nothing of like being saying like such disrespectful things or like referring to the major as um as being one of them coloreds so it's for her character. I think it adds a lot of sort of depth and gives us an insight into her sort of background. Um, I would say the most shocking thing is just the random acts of violence against her, against Daisy throughout the film. Um, uh-huh. That are actually more shocking than any of the language in this one's because it often comes out of nowhere that people were actually brutalize her or she gets things thrown at her or thrown up on. It's just <laughs> she goes through uh, quite the ringer in this movie. She does. I mean, Daisy gets all kinds of crap. It's like it's like sudden, right? He keeps she get, keeps getting beat up, and by the end of the film, she's really just blood covered and teeth all gone. And, yeah, you know, <laughs> she's uh she's gone through a lot. <laughs> she definitely does, and I think I mean it's still amusing me the scene where um because the major obviously has this letter this letter from Lincoln uh, that he corresponds uh, with and various characters wish to see it and she like disrespects this letter by spitting on it and Samuel Jackson just punching her straight out the cab and Kurt Russell's uh, character's been dragged out because he's chained to her just made me laugh even though it was sort of like it, I feel like I shouldn't be laughing but I would thought it was still really amusing at the same time <laughs> it's interesting obviously in the way that she's written because obviously she's treated as being the same as the guys she doesn't get any sort of like treating any sort of differently because she's the only female in the group she's not a damsel in distress she's very much this fugitive and by all means as it's frequently mentioned she's going to be set to hang so they they basically say that like basically <laughs> is is uh they call it mean bastards basically right yeah exactly so i mean basically it it doesn't really matter who it is as long as they've done something bad then they need to be hanged and that's the main concept here is that they don't really separate her from from the guys um the other men here are are also pretty nasty people, you know. They're <laughs> they're a nasty group. <laughs> so I don't know. Oh, definitely. So I mean, they've all got their flaws, and they've certainly all got their their assorted uh, beliefs here. I mean, obviously, when we look at 
Samuel Jackson's character, I mean, he escapes from a, a southern camp and burns it to the ground in the turn, killing his own troops, um, as well as a number of young... Um, I, I'm trying to describe, I remember how they described them. They were sort of like a, like a youth brigade that was staying on, on the camp that was sort of killed by his actions. And then he also has that whole wonderful story time where he um, antagonises Bruce Dern's character by claiming to have sexually assaulted uh, his son, which I have to say is like one of the one of the more shocking moments of the film. <laughs> um, hearing how he uh, how he um, sexually assaulted uh, this this guy's son, it was, I remember being in the cinema and just thinking, "What the hell is this?" <laughs> it's just like it's just like you just felt it's really uncomfortable, and I think it's the fact it's Samuel Jackson talking about forcing another guy to um, perform oral sex on him that just seemed like so out of character. Um, and it's it was so jarring. It felt very much like um, the scene at the scene at the end of Kingsman, the Secret Service, where um, he goes to rescue the princess chick, and she's sort of like, "Oh yeah, you can fuck me in the ass." It's like, like, did we really need an anal sex reference here? And the same way here, it's like, did we really need like a a sex abuse reference in the middle of this story? So I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I don't want to sound like. I'm really like unimpressed or anything, but I mean, it's just the fact that how do, how to say it? It would be more like I I think that in Tarantino movies anything is possible. Yeah. <laughs> um. After we watch so many movies, I really am not that shocked. Um. Especially when it comes to Samuel L. Jackson's character, okay. he always gives him these very over the top, outrageous, like ridiculous moments, and I think that this moment definitely counts as that moment for this character. Um, because I don't really think, like, his character, uh, he is pretty, like, overall he's done a lot of bad stuff, I guess. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, he's just being a bounty hunter, I guess. <laughs> so, Because, yeah, because uh, he, well, at the time, I mean, obviously he had a bounty on him and he basically outlasted all that came looking for him to the point that they can no longer put a bounty on him so he became a free man. And in turn, he links this to a lot of racial resentment from a lot of these guys from the, who were coming from the South with the um, idea of beheading um, a black guy. Yeah, and obviously one of them being this this major son who he got the better of um, in more ways than one. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was it was such a it's such a weird moment of of the film to say the least. So, but I think it was just so ridiculous because you have this moment building up, and right before that, you have um, the senior Bob playing Silent Night on the piano yeah. in the background. And you just have this conversation going on. And I think that the two mixed together was just so weirdly <laughs> satisfying to listen to. I don't know how to put it, but it was this moment that I kind of I kind of liked until the story took a turn for something really weird. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Bob's character is an odd one too. <laughs> Senior Bob. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Sidio Bob was actually um, at one point when they were doing like the initial script reads for their film because as part of 
when the the script was in production it actually got leaked onto the internet with a different ending and Tarantino at that point was like you know I'm not going to make it I'm just going to release it as a novel and then he started workshopping it and doing these live script reads and the character Senor Bob um, in the original script was actually French and um, he was uh, being read by Denis Minochet who's the farmer we see at the start of Inglorious Bastards yeah. So he wouldn't have been. He wouldn't have been uh, Senior Bob. I'm guessing he would have been Montreal Bob. And I also like the fact that when it comes to obviously describing, you know, the character Daisy, that he sees her really as like the Susan Atkins of the Wild West. Now Susan Atkins obviously being one of the Manson girls, and you can see that when you look at her character, I mean, she's always seen as like this sort of tough outlaw chick she's never has these moments of softness at all and i think the fact that she's constantly being brutalized and and bloodied up um it sort of only makes sure that she's not given a chance to be sort of seen as this demure little flower or anything so but no the character senior bob is such a weird one isn't he he is. And I think that, you know, just because um, when we first start the, like, when he introduces himself, he's just Bob, you know? Yeah. And, you're, and all of a sudden you're like, man, this guy is sketchy as shit, you know? Like, <laughs> right away, you're like, there's something wrong with it. Anybody who calls themselves Bob in anything, okay. most likely is, like, probably not, like, especially, like, in films like this, where it's, like, something deeper is going on. It almost feels like he, like, everybody has these, like, full names, you know, and fancy titles. This is a general, and this one's a major, and yeah. this is a sheriff, and all that stuff. And he's just like, I'm Bob, you know? <laughs> and I'm, you know, looking after the inn. And, <laughs> and it's, I like, the fact, as I said, the fact he's uh, Senior Bob, and it's, like, one of the first clues that, um, that Samuel Jackson's character sort of picks up that everything's not right because obviously he's been to this post before and he points out the fact that Minnie had a sign that said no dogs and no Mexicans um, and that she took it down the sign because she let a dog in but she obviously had this dislike of Mexicans and it unfortunately doesn't translate when we actually see her character in a flashback because she seems to get on with everybody even Bob when he shows up she has no disdain for him even though he's obviously a Mexican so that part didn't make much sense, but it's kind of fun when it gets into that sort of like um, Poirot style mystery. It's sort of like, well, who is the fo- who is um, not the person that they say they are, and it it's ties it is weird because you've got that sort of like Poirot sort of mystery where they're sort of like you got him the major and you got the sheriff who's sort of like piecing everything together and trying to identify who's. The guy who poisoned the coffee and who um, is, you know, who's uh, responsible for all these murders and things. So I like the mystery element to it. And I also like the fact that it's got this undertones of the thing to it. The fact that we got these howling winters outside, which I, I get. I don't know if it's for yourself, Kim. It has the same sort of effect. I mean, obviously, coming from the land of ice and snow that you do, but... I don't live in ice and snow. It's not like I live in the Arctic, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, you, but you see more snow than I see in snow. So it's for myself, it's got a magical edge to it when we have like howling blizzards and stuff. We don't have to like dig our driveways out over here. Well, I mean, I think it's different. I think that snowscapes in general are pretty 
is is a pretty good setting in general for a lot of different genres of movies. And I still I still think that they're they're pretty good because there's this isolation, right? You yeah. have this sense of isolation, especially when you're caught in some snowstorm and some blizzard or something. I think it's different because I do know how bad the snow is that it you know that it, it, it might actually be a little bit easier to be uh, caught up in the situation uh, of a film. I didn't. It was also weird as well. I don't know if you thought the same, but it seemed kind of cozy. The whole end situation. I mean, they have one bed, so I don't know whether they plan. Everyone plans to sort of sleep and stuff, but it didn't seem like the worst place in the world to be sort of like stuck in a blizzard for two days. So, because normally <laughs> when you look at these places, they're pretty awful. Like when we look at the um, research base in the thing, it's very sort of like basic and looks uncomfortable as all hell. But you know, this actually looked like it'd be a a pretty decent place to sort of. Uh, be hold up for two days although well, obviously it's just, because, the... it's just because no one needed to go to the bathroom yeah so i mean you didn't see anybody like trekking their way to the outhouse other than what ob or something uh. that's true um and i was kind of disappointed as well the fact we get no shots of blood on snow which is what i always want to see when we have like any snow places i love seeing blood on snow it's like one of those uh tropes that just never gets old for me so <laughs> Also, with um, directors, obviously, when we talk about directors' trademarks here, uh, Tarantino here has a cameo this time as the narrator, which seemed it seemed felt more like he was reading like the script notes than actually providing narration. It's sort of like, oh, the group hid guns, or <laughs> they decided to draw straws. Ob got the short straw. Um, I have to say, Ob has a real shitty time of things here. <laughs> I think that you know, I think that Tarantino doing this is not too bad. Um, it really kind of pulls the script together. Like, uh, you kind of have a good idea of say um, time frame in a sense, where one party was like, "Oh, fifteen minutes later, this is what's going on." Yeah. Thing. Or you know, what's going on with the people around? Uh, just kind of clearing up the situation a little, I think, and that helps. I guess I don't think it's completely necessary but i think it's it's a decent addition i guess um we also get the return of zoe bell which is always welcome to see um who's been a tarantino cast regular since providing stunt work for kill bill and then obviously uh she turns up as herself in death proof and Django unchained and now here she is the only new zealand chick in the wild west mm-hmm. um i don't know was if there is many australians who came over to the west but um it was kind of nice to see her it is i mean I, I do think zoe bell has her like little cameo characters in in these tarantino films and they're i think she's a pr- i think i sometimes feel like she deserves to have a bigger role yeah <laughs> i mean she has obviously had more bigger roles i mean she was obviously in whip it and she was in race mm. um yeah. so she has that off the back of her like um, appearances in Tarantino movies, she's obviously gone on to have more of a career as a, as an actor. And she has she has very good acting abilities. So um, you're right; it would be nice to see her in more. You know, maybe maybe down the line, maybe Tarantino writes something for her. When we get the the I'm driving which which chapter it is now because the film's obviously broken up into six chapters. I want to say. Um, 
which yeah, is a, it's a nice touch as well the fact that when you have the dvd it's not by scene it's all by chapter so it makes it really easy if you wanted to like just break this up a bit because it is a bit of a long movie so when we obviously got the opening credits and it's listing all the cast and stuff i remember that first time i was watching it and like thinking god well where are all these people i mean we've clearly got our eight people here it's like where the hell do these people come into it and then we obviously had the surprise flashback that obviously introduces all our missing cast members with the when it comes to the twist i mean did it sort of pay off for yourself or i think it did I think, I think that, you know, I mean, if there's anything that, you know, I can't fault Tarantino for is his writing abilities. <laughs> you know, like, script script and stuff is, uh, is really good on his point. And I think that for this one, it's really good because, I mean, other than the first act, which I really did not like going through. Yeah. Um, like, the first hour of the film or so that I really, really hate going through. Uh, the whole part where we have these people and then finally seeing, you know, the, the whole plan or like the whole twist in, in a chapter five or something as a Mm. flashback, I think it all pieces the things together. Like what they, the little details that say, oh, one person finds or sees and the information that kind of gets bounced around about this location itself. Um, and you know, Minnie and, um and sweet dave and all these little things that they're talking about it all gets kind of pieced together in that flashback scene to to the beginning of the movie basically yeah of course um and to me i think that that's a really that is a really good touch because it in one in just like that that few moments it kind of puts everything into perspective to build you up for the big finale um like where do they go from there now of course, and I like as well the fact that when it came to his casting, it's sort of like everyone's very much on the level. There's no sort of like one big star to sort of like really stand out or make themselves identify easily to identify as being like the hero sort of figure in this one. Everyone's pretty much on the same sort of level in terms of star power. I mean, obviously you've got new additions, people like Walter Goggins, who at this point was still coming off Justified, so he hadn't really become like a household name. And then you obviously got like revivalist names like Jennifer Jason Lee, and you've got Bruce Dern, um, who plays the matron. Who prior to watching this, I caught in the driver, so it was kind of fun to see him back in his prime in like '76, um, and then obviously see him here in this. And he's not lost it, although he's not one of those actors I could ever sort of place. So if you said, "Oh, Bruce Dern's in this," he's like, "Yeah, I can't place that." But obviously, I can understand why Tarantino includes him because he loves to. Includes his favorite actors from uh, back in the day. So, <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. I I really, other than the basic people like Samuel L. Jackson or yeah. Tim Roth or something, I honestly can't really pinpoint a lot of the people here. Oh, okay. So, yeah, because it's not really like I I went through. You know, I remember when I finished watching this, I was really impressed with um, Jennifer Jason Lee, and I was like, I know I've seen her somewhere, but where? You know, yeah. and it's like blank 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 type of thing and then same goes for bruce dern um which i think after that i started really noticing him when he showed up in um in other films um but i mean the other people like i think i didn't really pay much attention to it until we did our season now so now like you know 
Michael Madsen kind of pops up whenever I see him now. Like it is kind of like, oh well, oh that's that that's that's the guy. He's been in almost all of the films, type of thing, in one way or another. Funny as well with Michael Madsen, who is repulsed by um, by violence and in real life, and the fact he constantly turns up in these like ultra violent roles. Um, like when they were doing the bride bearing sequence in Kill Bill Volume Two, he noted that he felt physically sick. So it's just um, amusing the fact he's like, you keep signing on for these projects, knowing that they're going to be like stupidly violent. It's like, <laughs> then again, I suppose what does what can he actually play? I mean, do you see Michael Madsen in like a romantic comedy or or um, a family picture or something? He's sort of like got limited roles he can play. He has to. So capitalize on what he is because he's a big guy. So yeah, I understand. <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, like. <laughs> um, but yeah, I um, it. I mean, I enjoyed this more than Django. As but even though like the Western period of Tarantino's filmography isn't my favorite by far. I mean, this originally was set to be a sequel to Django. Um, it's going to be called Django in White Hell. Uh, but Tarantino couldn't really make the character work um, in this sort of setting, so he decided just to push ahead and have a new bunch of characters instead. So I f- assume that we can assume that the major was going to be would be like the Django character in this, um, because obviously when we look at Django Unchained, I mean he's got bounty hunters after him as well. So yeah. there's elements of the character you can see sort of carried through, and then of a he sort of like built this character up to be more so original. The fact he has like the Lincoln letter, and he's obviously got his own ideas when it comes to like justice and being a bounty hunter. I and mean, as he says that you know, I don't bring any of my bounties in alive. I bring, I just kill them all dead because it's a lot more hassle to bring them in alive. Whereas when we look at Kate Russell's character, he's sort of like um, he, he uh, likes to see all his bounties hung. So. <laughs> well, I mean, we we realize why at the end. Because I must clearly miss something there then. Yeah, because they they say he's the hangman. Of course. <laughs> there we go. So that's why. Um, but you know, I mean, but uh, yeah, I mean, if you compared it to Django and Chain, I don't know. I mean, I guess I like Hateful Eight a little bit more. Yeah. Um, just because the second act is so crazy. <laughs> what, the fact you get to see Channing Tatum shot in the head. <laughs> uh, no, I don't really care too much for Channing Tatum. Um, Again, he gets shot in the head, so it solves that problem then, doesn't it? So. Uh, well, no, I don't really care either way. <laughs> like, I mean, I thought his character was pretty little overall. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it was, it wasn't just, I remember when I first saw him in the film, like the first time I saw this in theaters and I saw him and I was like, oh my God, that's Channing Tatum. How, how did he land himself a role in Tarantino's film? (laughs) (laughs) And I think that was, that was what I said. And I didn't mean it in like a mean way or anything. I just meant it in the sense that I didn't realize, like, I didn't really see him being casted into a Tarantino film, but. Well, you did hate your freeloader. You got to earn your right to be (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, but but then I mean, when you think about it, in in twenty fifteen when Hateful Eight was out, he's already kind of shifted his character a little. Um, 
I mean, obviously, he shifted it from the beginning phase because now his biggest movie was Magic Mike or something. So, <laughs> so, so I guess that's why I didn't really picture him um, being in this film. <laughs> yes, the former <laughs> exotic dancer made a movie about being a male exotic dancer. Yeah, it was a real <laughs> push for him. So, and they're saying that. I mean, we obviously give Chan to him a lot of shit, but it, he has branched out and put in some like really interesting surprise appearances. Like, um, um, he turns up randomly, and this is the end. No, no. I mean, I'm not shitting on Channing Tatum. I really think that from you know his early days of his early movies where he was pegged as just one type of actor like yeah. that, that kind of um he was really like really not very diverse in his roles i think that it's really nice to see that he's breaking out of this and i think that probably started with i don't know 21 jump street or something like that yeah. and i think that's when you finally kind of broke out of that thing and turned into kind of changed his path a little so um i mean i think it's i think it's nice i think it was a nice surprise to see him in hateful eight like i don't really like i mean i don't really care if his character got shot in the head because i think that his character was so small um it was kind of hanging over the whole time i guess that there was this character but um it didn't really come into play until until pretty late in the movie right I'm going to pronounce really to say about this one. Um, other than Kurt Russell destroying the guitar, that was actually an antique guitar. So Jennifer Jason, um, Jennifer Jason Lee's reaction was actually for real. Um, <laughs> the plan was to switch it out for a fake prop one for Kurt Russell to smash, but he actually smashed the proper antique one from the 18th century. The museum no longer lends out their their um their uh, collection to filming anymore as a result of this film so <laughs> so yeah her reaction is very much real um as Kevin Russell had noted the, you know he looked over at Tarantino and he had the sort of like cold lips smile to him as he'd uh, clearly got something that he needed from this moment so but yeah, it, it all it cost was just destroying a valuable antique. So, but yeah, there's a lot of real random musical moments in this film. So. Yeah, well, I mean, music is always soundtrack is always such a big part of Tarantino's movies, right? And this one obviously has Erico uh, Morcone, who obviously did a lot of the spaghetti westerns. He did like you know, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, all those sort of iconic spaghetti western scores. So, for Tarantino to obviously get him on to do the soundtrack of this film was sort of like a real get for him and I mean it's a bit of fanboy um, wish fulfillment there to obviously make a western and have it you know soundtracked by Morcone it's all like you know that's the real sort of not a, you've made a proper western in that respect so mm. but I have to say it's, it doesn't limit itself to sort of like genre style pieces there's elements of like modern music in this and the film itself doesn't feel like it's trying to be like a period piece. It's just more sort of like a, a revivalist sort of Western feel to it. Yeah, I, I guess so. I mean, I don't, you know, you know, this is not my forte, so I don't okay. know. I really don't know. <laughs> I've watched like three. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. I I prefer Eastern Westerns to just traditional Westerns, so... um. 
I do like it when they do something new. I mean, this or if you like look at things like Bone Tomahawk. So, you know, give me a Western, but just do something more interesting than just usual cowboy shit. That's all I ask. <laughs> well, that brings us to the end of tonight's episode. Thank you as always for listening. If you haven't done already, please do hit the like and subscribe button wherever you happen to listen to us. Maybe leave us a review as it all helps raise the profile of the show. Um, we are on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, so come and say hi to us there. And you can also check out our full archive episodes at moviesandtpodcast.wordpress.com, uh, where we also have our Friday Film Club, where each Friday myself and Kim both pick a film to highlight. Sometimes it's a theme, sometimes it's not. Either way, it's a chance for us to explore more of the movies that we love. Um, but Kim, it's our final episode, next episode. Yes. And uh, we're going to be looking at Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, 2019 movie. Also, almost three hours long. Yay! <laughs> so excited. Is it a first time watch? Have you seen this one before? Yes, it's a first time watch. But at least there's Margot Robbie in it. I'm it's looking true. at the list of characters and I'm excited about that. <laughs> yep, it's another alternate history lesson from Quentin Tarantino. As uh, he brings together both Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt, and as you said already, Margot Robbie, for a unique history lesson to say the least. But all that's uh, <laughs> coming up in our next episode. Uh, so hope you can join us for that. But um, until then, thank you for listening. Thanks to my co-host Kim, and we will be back next time to look at Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But until then, good night. <laughs>